0: So we are considering the stories and the history of Jerusalem as we consider our congregation and our role in the hope of the body of Christ in the future. And so we're working our way through the timeline, through the history. And last week we talked about Jeremiah, and I want to talk a little bit more about the prophet Jeremiah this week. The prophet Jeremiah lived in the shadow of the Babylonian Empire, Uh, Much of the book of the Bible tells the story of what led to the destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple in 586 B.C. That's the setting for the book of Jeremiah and what happens throughout that book. The destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, was an 18-month-long process. And so for 18 months, the city of Jerusalem was under siege, and during that time, famine was rampant. The city of Jerusalem was set on fire during the siege, and it was as if those who died on the inside during that fire were luckier than those who starved. King Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was captured, and he was brought before Nebuchadnezzar who had the king's sons killed in front of him before he then put his eyes out because he wanted that to be the very last thing that he saw. Then he put gold shackles around his ankles. He's a king. And he carted him off to Babylon. Many other captives in the city of Jerusalem and in Judah were taken to Babylon as well. Almost in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, there is this episode between two prophets, between the prophet Jeremiah, who is pictured behind me, and the prophet Hananiah. Hananiah appears on the scene and says, we are safe. The Babylonian invasion will be short-lived, and then things will go back to normal. We are safe because of the promises of God. Jeremiah Jeremiah, who is preaching with a wooden yoke around his neck, says, There are no guarantees, and it's ours to keep the covenant no matter what. Well, then Hananiah walks over to Jeremiah and breaks the wooden yoke that is around his neck and says, This is how I will break the yoke of the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon from the neck of all the nations within two years. Jeremiah leaves the scene, but he reappears with an iron yoke around his neck. And he says, all of these nations will serve Nebuchadnezzar. And you, Hananiah, you have made the people trust in a lie. Richard Rohr this week wrote, A prophet is one who keeps God free for people. And who keeps people free for God. I believe that is true about what a prophet does and who a prophet is. Michelangelo depicted Jeremiah uh, behind me in that painting behind me. And I like that painting of Jeremiah because it depicts his strength. He's a strong guy. But it also depicts the burden ...of the prophet, to do what the prophet is called to do, to keep the people free for God and to keep God free for the people. Could this be the difference between the two prophets that are in Jerusalem, between Jeremiah and Hananiah? Hananiah Hananiah dictates God's ways and turns a blind eye to the ways that the people were violating both the covenant... And the vulnerable people that God had placed in their care. But Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says God's ways are not to be dictated. And to the people he says don't forget. Don't forget only in relationship to God can you recognize true freedom. That is where your freedom lies. Our scripture passage for today was probably written By the very people who were carted off to Babylon to live in exile. It is one that I have never heard a sermon preached from. And if I were to read it for you right now without giving you any preparation, your initial reaction, I promise, would be, nice girls don't say things like that. Our scripture passage is Psalm 137. And I'm going to ask you to read it with me. It's nine verses. We'll read it together and then we will ask the question, is this truly an expression of freedom or do they still not get it? Let's read it together. Alongside Babylon's rivers, we sat on the banks. We cried and cried, remembering the good old days in Zion. Alongside the quaking aspens, we stacked our unplayed harps. That's where our captors demanded songs, sarcastic and mocking, sing us a happy Zion song. Oh, how could we ever sing God's song in this wasteland? If I ever forget you, Jerusalem, let my fingers wither and fall off like leaves. Let my tongue swell and turn black if I fail to remember you. If I fail, oh dear Jerusalem, to honor you as my greatest. God, remember those Edomites, and remember the ruins of Jerusalem. That day they yelled out, wreck it, smash it to bits. And you Babylonians, ravagers, a reward to whoever gets back at you for all you've done to us. Yes, a reward to the one who grabs your babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. Psalm 137 tells us quite clearly that the Israelites are not in the right place. Watching the effects of the hurricanes these last few weeks, I feel like I've had a clear view of what it looks like to be displaced. On local news this week, I watched as people from a San Antonio shelter were boarding buses to go back home to Rockport and Port Aransas and Beaumont, And one woman didn't get on the bus. Instead, she just sat on the seat of her walker as the buses were being filled, and she said to the camera, I have no home. My home sits on its side now. It was blown over. It was destroyed. So I guess I'll just stay here in San Antonio. Another man on the national news was clearly emotional as he picked up bottled water from the back of a first responders truck. He stayed with his home during the storm in the Florida Keys with his wife and his eight-year-old daughter, and he said to the camera, we should have evacuated. It's terrible. Everything is gone. I've seen, and I bet you've seen too in the last few weeks, what it is like to be displaced. But I also know, I know on a smaller scale, what it's like to be ...in the wrong place, to not be in the right place. You know that feeling when you're disoriented, when everything seems like it's out of place, out of whack, foreign, unrecognizable. There's just been a change and things just are not the same. They're just not right. Sometimes in my life I have noticed that this happens suddenly and dramatically... Like when a storm comes, or we move from one place to another, or there's a job change in our home, but other times it seems to sneak up on me. We had this week um, back to school night at the high school, and while I really like to meet my daughter's teachers, uh, it becomes pretty evident to me when I walk around on the campus that high school is not my territory anymore, <laughs> It used to be, there was a time when high school was my territory. So my experience Monday night, maybe I should tell you about Keith's experience. My husband's experience Monday night was to listen to me drone on and on about how great it would be to be in high school again. Especially, I said, in science classes this science building, I said to Keith, it's terrific. I want to hang out here. If I could just take physics and chemistry and astronomy, you can take astronomy now. If you have a brand new telescope, that is so cool. Then I said to Keith, I would really pay attention this time and I would be really good at science. Keith, who has known me long enough to have witnessed my brilliant science career in college, did not buy into my nostalgia. (laughs) No, he said, Dinah, that would not be fun. And they do not need your help in the science building. (laughs) Nostalgia can be fun. It can be fun because I have a lot of good memories, and I have a lot of good memories from high school. But I suspect that I have a tendency to exaggerate how wonderful the good old days were, and I fail to accurately see the goodness that is immediately in front of me right now. Psalm 137. Psalm 137 may very well have been sung by the Israelites when they were captive in Babylon. I've even heard it suggested that They sang the psalm in Hebrew so that the Babylonian captors couldn't understand what they were saying. The theme of Psalm 137 is remembering. Remembering Jerusalem. Remembering the holy city. Remembering where they've come from. And then also remembering our enemies, they say, to God. Bring retribution to them. Walter Brighamon, who's an Old Testament scholar, suggests that the problem with this psalm is that the Israelites are over remembering. And that's an intriguing thought to me because these are the people who are called to remember the covenant, to remember the story of freedom. To remember the Torah. That's a part of their very calling. It's a part of their very identity. And what happens in this psalm. Could well be that they over remember. They spin out. They do too much of it. They exaggerate. The remembering. Their over remembering of Jerusalem. Has the potential to become. A very act of denial. Because it's it. It has the potential to be an act of refusal to look for the work of God, to look for revelation in the midst of suffering and change. Because suffering, suffering is never fun and change can be difficult. It's easier, I believe, to stay in the remembering and to over-remember a sacred space or a sacred place. Some nostalgia is, in fact, fun. But my warning to you this morning is to be careful not to stay there. When we stay in nostalgia, when we overremember, remember, we become captives. We are just captive to the past, and we are incapable of enjoying the new thing or things that God is doing. There is a book that many of the leaders in this church are reading right now called Canoeing the Mountains. And David's going to lead a class on this book. I think it's a five-week class and it starts next week. But the title Canoeing the Mountains comes from the Lewis and Clark Scouting Party. The Scouting Party was sent out by Thomas Jefferson to find a water route that everyone believed existed, that would flow from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. Meriwether Lewis was a river explorer, and at one point in the journey, he believed that he would walk over the top of a hill, and he would look down that hill, and when he looked down that hill, he would see a gentle slope that would take the party about half a day to cross. They'd put the canoes on their backs. They'd cross that gentle slope, and then they would put their canoes into the river where they would float easily down to the Pacific Ocean. At that point in the journey where he came up over the hill, where he expected to find a river, you know what he found when he got to the top of the hill? Instead of a river, he found, he spied, he saw the Rocky Mountains. One member in the party wrote in his journal, They were the most terrible mountains I had ever beheld. (laughs) What do we do when plans change? Do we insist on staying the same? Do we insist on carrying that canoe with us (laughs) when everything around us changes? Or can we explore a new way? Can we explore a new place? You see, I believe that the spiritual terrain around us has changed. So I wonder, what does it look like now to be the body of Christ? What's our new way? Longing for crowds of the past on Sunday mornings could just be one version of denial. You know, um, my 10-year-old is playing baseball right now. He's on a baseball team, and there's one mother that looks like a very bad mother on that team because it's a group of really good parents. Do you know who the bad mother is? Because you know when the games are played? Right now, Sunday morning. (laughs) Things have changed out there. It's different for the church. And so the question is, what will discipleship look like going forward? Well, nostalgia and denial are not the only over-remembering in Psalm 137. The other form of overremembering that happens is that the Israelites obsess over their enemies. The Israelites blame the Edomites. So the Edomites would be like family members to the Israelites. They are the descendants of Esau. They blame the Edomites for cheering on the Babylonians during the destruction of Jerusalem. And then, of course, they blame the Babylonians for their demise. As a lover of righteous anger, I get it. Both the Edomites and the Babylonians look pretty reprehensible to me. There's a book called Small Victories that's written by um, Anne Lamont, and there's a chapter in this book that I really like. The chapter in this book that I really like, she writes about her enemy, or she call, who she calls her this um, another mother in uh, her child's class, the uh, class at the elementary school. She calls this person her enemy light. Not just an not enemy, but enemy light. And I like that idea of enemy light because C.S. Lewis wrote, if you want to get good at forgiveness, if you want to forgive, you need to start with something easier than the Gestapo. So it's good to have an enemy light, right? That's good practice, yeah. So she says that this mother is her enemy light because uh, she always has mean eyes, and she always wears spandex because she can. So then Lamont confesses this. She says, I thought such awful thoughts about her that I can't even say them out loud because they would make Jesus want to drink gin straight out of a cat dish. Lamont has this really good practice of keeping an inbox for God in her bedroom. And so she writes the woman's name on a piece of paper and she puts it in the inbox. After a second encounter with the woman at the school, she takes out the slip of paper and she writes an exclamation point after the name and she puts it back in the inbox. After a third encounter, she writes on the back of the slip of paper, we are going to need the big guns and she puts it back in the inbox. Eventually, she confesses in her book, the veil finally dropped. I got that I am as mad as a hatter. I saw that I was the one worried that my child wasn't doing well in school, that I was the one who thought I was out of shape, and that I was trying to get her to carry all this for me because it hurt too much to carry it myself. Blame is usually a sign of unprocessed grief. Lamont alludes to this when she says, I was trying to get her, I was trying to get her to carry all of this because it hurt too much for me. The problem with blame is that unchecked, unchecked blame can lead to violence, to us speaking violently about another person or acting violently. Years ago, one of the very first Stephen ministers that I knew in this congregation, who was also a therapist, taught me about anger. And this is what he taught me about anger. He said, anger is simply a natural reaction to an unmet expectation. So we can't control anger initially. It happens naturally when things don't go as we want them to go. The best that we can do is to recognize anger, to recognize it, and then move forward as we recognize it. Psalm 137 teaches me that there are two stances that I can take when I'm angry. When I am angry, I can take the stance of denial. And when I am angry, I can also take the stance of blame. Neither denial nor blame is a helpful permanent stance because neither one can help me to determine the way forward. But both denial and blame are very honest. And both are best expressed in prayer, I believe. God can handle our unmet expectations. God can handle that with us, for us, both small and large. God can handle our anger. God can handle our anger when it shows up as a longing for the past and even when it shows up as a desire for retribution. When we were talking about this scripture passage in the pastor's study this week, David Miknitsky, the senior pastor, reminded me that pastors are not medical doctors. Don't you like that he told me that? Dinah, you're not a surgeon. That's good advice. If I walk in here with a scalpel, you guys need to run. Because he said, "Tina, there's no such thing as a psalmectomy. You can't take it out of there. Psalm 137 remains in the Bible. We can't take it out just because it's inflamed, which it is. Because Psalm 137 teaches us. It teaches us to pray honestly. So, would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You see all that we have and all that we are, both the good and the bad. We silently and very honestly place before you those things that trigger anger in us. Would you search our hearts? And help us to know where we are yearning for the past and where we are placing blame. Help us to see exactly where the pain is. And in this sacred space, we silently name those expectations that were not met. And we silently name those that our anger seeks to destroy. Lord, during this time of prayer, we also consider those who think that our actions are an attack on their hope. Almighty God, you desire freedom for us. You desire freedom for all. And your power works for restoration. Would you take from us that which is harmful and destroys life? Provide new life and new ways, because that is, after all, what you do. Amen.